Hey, everybody, it's Justin Shackle welcoming you into Towing the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn. It is episode three, and it's not Tuesday. We're here on Thursday in between games two and three of the World Series. We have some bonus material for you on this day. David, what are we talking about here, and who are we talking about it with? Yeah, our first official guest, right, on Towing the Slab, guys. So I'm excited. Obviously a pitcher and a veteran pitcher. I mean, a guy after my own heart. If I, you know, when you think about pitchers that pitch till they're 40 years old, that, that's a short list, especially if you factor in pitchers who pitch really well in their 40-year-old season. So Adam Wainwright is the guy, big fan of his work, both on the field. He also did, did a little broadcasting this postseason and did a great job with that as well. Very thoughtful guy. You know, James, uh, James Smythe here, you know, you're going to help us kind of put his career into context, but I'm really excited about talking to Adam. Yeah, we got to dive into the World Series with him, have him go over some of the things that helped him thrive in 2021 and where he sees himself moving forward as we get into 2022 as well. But James, that is a hell of a resume for Adam Wainwright, huh? Oh, yeah. And he just finished his 16th season and it was a fantastic one. World Series champ. Three-time All-Star, two gold gloves. He's got four top three NL Cy Young finishes, even as a silver slugger. And uh, with 184 wins, he's, uh, he's, he's moving towards that 200 milestone. Uh, a fantastic career. And like Coney said, uh, a great season for a guy at his age. He's the oldest pitcher with 206 in the third innings this year. He's the oldest pitcher to be in the top three in the major leagues in innings since Randy Johnson in 2004. All right, let's get to it. It's the ace of the St. Louis Cardinals, Adam Wainwright, here on Tillman the Slab, pitching with David Cohn. Adam, thanks for coming on here with us, man. You are our uh, you're an inaugural guest on Tillman the Slab, so uh, you always have that to uh, punch into your resume now. A, a great resume for you. Thanks for coming on here, man. Thank you for having me. I apologize for my tardiness, but I'm glad to be here with you all, and I'm glad to talk to the great David Cohn and talk to y'all all about pitching and baseball and whatever else you got playing. I'm ready for it. Before we get started, I do have one thing to ask you with that because yeah, we were trying to get you on earlier in the week and you said that you were in a, a farm meeting and I'm asking this at the risk of humiliating myself. Is this a, is this a Cardinals farm meeting or I know you like gardening. Is this a, like a farmer in the Dell meeting for lack of a better phrase? Definitely a farmer in the Dell meeting. I, uh, I run a farm called Five Oaks Farm down here in South Georgia, and uh, we provide uh, lots of food to many different local restaurants and to people in need around here in this area. We do, uh, we do an indoor hydroponics unit. We do uh, a two and a half acre garden, fruit trees. We have pecans. We, do, we have 120 beehives. We... Uh, we have a pretty big operation and it is so fun to me. Um, I love to get my hands dirty. When I tore my elbow in 2011 at Tommy John, I got interested in gardening and then that's grown to full fledged pr production farming. So um, I'm loving every bit of it. How many acres do you have? Uh, it's about 1600. We, uh, we farm 300 of it. Um, we are actually what I was in the meeting of. We are actually building a. We've just are potentially we're in the. I don't want to give too much away, uh, but we're in the final stages of purchasing a twenty-acre property right in the middle of my hometown, Brunswick, Georgia, where we're going to move our hydroponics and our garden there, 
uh, and some of our chickens. Oh yeah, I didn't mention we have we have uh, over 300 chickens where we farm the eggs and and uh, free range chicken eggs are the best. They are so much different than store bought yellow eggs. It is crazy how much better and creamier and awesome they are. So I'm loving all those kinds of things, and we're we're about to do something dynamic inside the city. David, I think we have our first corporate sponsor for us on this podcast, the Wainwright Free Range uh, Chicken Eggs here. I'm hungry now all of a sudden. I, I, I want an omelet now. I want some of those eggs right now. <laughs> Five Oaks Farm. It's going to be a label. You watch. Nice. That's awesome. But Adam, before we get started, man, you got a new manager uh, in St. Louis with the Cardinals. Just introduced earlier this week, Oliver Marmol, 35 years of age, uh, youngest current manager in the big leagues. What, uh, what stands out to you about working with Oliver in the past and, and just being around him? What can you tell us about Oliver Marmol? The great thing about Oliver is he's been a coach in our system now since 2011. Uh, he's been in the big leagues with us for the last four years um, and different role, all different roles, first base coach, um, third base coach. He's uh, been bench coach. And so he understands what I really like about his role is he understands all the different aspects of the coaching and what it goes on. And he's been as a bench coach, you know, you're doing most of the coaching as a bench coach. Uh, but you're also connecting as the bench coach. You have this role where you're connecting to the players on a deeper and more intimate level than a lot of the different coaches are. Uh, you have your hands in every single thing on the field and off the field. But also, I'm glad that he got the job because uh, we've got some real good momentum coming in in the last few years of just getting better. And, and uh, this last year, the second half of the season, especially the first the last month and a half, we really clicked as a unit, as a team. And as him stepping in, and we're not going to start over. We're not going to be, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. We know him. He understands the continuity of the club. We're going to be able to keep that going. It's going to be really cool. Have you spoken to him since he was hired? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Ali and I are close. We're good friends. And but now he's my manager. You know, things change. When you're the bench coach, you're everybody's buddy. And then when you become the, the manager, you got to kind of be a little bit more business. We'll see. I, I still have a great relationship with him, though, and um, he knows not to come take me out before the seventh inning, and we'll be good. <laughs> and you and, and Yadier Molina are now older than the manager. I bet no one else has pointed that out to you. So uh, you, yeah, you right. have that going on as well. Um, World Series here, man. I mean, you're you're a Georgia guy. You grew up not too far away from Atlanta. Braves are in it now. The series coming back to Atlanta. I'm sure it's pretty crazy in that area, in that neck of the woods right now. But first two games – Games one and two in Houston. Would you, uh, would you, what was your biggest takeaway? Well, I watched that Houston series against the White Sox. I got to call that series. And so I know that, that team really well. I pitched against them four times in a row in spring training this year. It's a really tough squad to pitch against. It's a very deep lineup. Lots of guys who can go deep uh, from the first, obviously from the number one hole in Altuve, but all the way down. You know, you, when I was calling the series against the White Sox, you had the batting champ batting seventh. So uh, it's a really deep lineup. My question with them was about the pitching staff and whether they were going to be able to, to make it through a seven-game series again against a very, very tough team in Atlanta that likes to swing the bat and have dynamic hitters of their own. So uh, I, think, I think it's going to be a great series. You have two dynamic lineups. I give the pitching edge, even though Charlie's hurt now, I give the pitching edge to Atlanta, definitely. Um, the lineups are pretty close. Maybe the edge goes to Houston, but it's really close. Uh, I was watching Smulty break down 
you know, the, the infield yesterday. And I, I don't know. I mean, Bregman's an amazing player. He's a friend of mine. He's a great guy. But this Austin Riley guy is a, is a true superstar. I think he's a, you know, he's going to be top 10, in the MVP, probably, probably Albies and Freeman are too. You got three top 10 in the, in the MVP guys in the infield right there. I think he's a superstar. He's 24 years old. He's going to be special. He already is special. He seems like he's not scared of the big moment. He's out there performing on the biggest stage and first at bat gets a huge knock and driven in a couple people already playing solid defense. I give the edge to the Braves, but I think it's going to be a close series. I love both those managers. Brian Snicker managed me in double A. I'm really close with him, but I have so much respect for Dusty Baker uh, and the job he's done. I think he needs to be a Hall of Fame manager, plus what his playing career was. So I think he's special. So it's hard for me to root against either team because I like a lot of those guys and, and especially the managers. Was that in the Southern League? Give us a Snicker story. Yeah, well, the story that he likes to tell is how immature I was at the time. And he's right. Uh, and I got into a big fight with our pitching coach in the middle of his office and the phone got thrown right over the top of his head. That, those were back in my younger days where I just needed a, I just needed a, you know, I needed a phone thrown at me and, uh, and I deserved it. And uh, he had to witness that, unfortunately. But, you know, you come a long way when you're 20 years old, you've earned your own for the first time ever. You're experiencing everything new. You've always been, you know, the best player, and all of a sudden you're surrounded by best players. You see a lot of young guys struggle with that, and that was no different. David, what was the equivalent of having a throne, a phone thrown at you in your younger days oh, coming pretty, up? I could really relate to that. I had some battles with some old-school pitching coaches myself in the minor leagues along the way, and, you know, it, it brings a smile to my face. It's obvious. You know, that's one of the things, Adam, I wanted to, wanted to kind of run by you. Do you, feel, do you still feel connected to the Braves? I know you were a number one pick right out of high school. You know, way back when, I guess 2000 it was. And, uh, you know, do you still feel that connection to the Braves? Well, I do. I mean, it, and it's hard not to, especially around here. I live in South Georgia. I live on St. Simons Island in South Georgia, right on the coast. And I was at the driving range yesterday and and two little boys were sitting next to me. And they were hitting balls on the range. They had Dansby Swanson and Freddie Freeman jerseys on. So, I mean, you know, we're doing a big Georgia-Florida party this weekend, and everybody that's coming here is going to say, how about them Braves? What do you think? You're going to go back to the Braves one day? I'm like, you know, I have to explain to guys every year, no, I'm not going back to the Braves. They don't want me. They, I'm a Cardinal, and, and they don't need me, and they're in the World Series. They're just fine. Well, be a whole lot cooler if you go back to the Braves. I'm like, yeah, I hear you, buddy. But uh, we're going to hear about I feel I do feel connected. I was the biggest Braves fan in the history of the world growing up. You broke my heart several times, Mr. Cone, um, beating those Braves. And uh, I, I just, you know, I mean, it was so fun. It was so, so, such a big part of my youth watching Glavin, Maddox, and Smoltz you know, every night, 7.35, TBS, every game was on TV. You knew what time it was going to be on. You knew who they were playing against. And, and uh, I mean, just, you know, Chipper and Andrew, getting to face those guys in the, in the, in the big leagues too was a surreal moment. But um, it was such a big part of my youth. It, it helped really uh, grow my love of the game. I mean, I had clips of, of Smoltz and Glavin and Maddox in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution clipped out and printed on my wall. You know, I had stories of Greg Maddox – did a big, big, big interview in 1995, uh, just kind of going into the mind game of pitching. And I, I had that on my wall my entire high school career. So uh, it was just a big part of my youth. I loved the Braves back then, and, and they were special. And I'll always have a little place in my heart for them. One of the questions I had, you are kind of right in the middle of kind of the old school, new school uh, changes in the game in terms of how you broke in, 
how you learned how to throw that great curveball, your repertoire, and then some of the new technology that's coming to the game in the middle of your career, whether it's high-speed cameras, the way we measure spin rate now. Uh, has that impacted you? Do you use some of that new technology? Has that kind of spurred uh, you know, uh, your resurgence here at the end and coming off a great year? I mean, one of your best years maybe was this year in your age 40 season. Yeah, you know, I, I think it, it took me a couple of years to kind of figure out everything. I mean, anything in its early stages, right, you're going to be a little speculative about. So I, I, if I was just being honest, the first couple of years that, that analytics kind of started creeping in the game, uh, I don't say I was against it, but I just didn't want to hear anything. I just, I'm, hey, I have what I do and I do what I, I, I do and it's fine and it works and that's whatever. But, you know, as you as you grow older in the game and and maybe a little probably a little wiser too you realize there's things to learn from that and there's there's little techniques and there's little spin rate things and little you know arm angles or or hand angles even or you know where my arm needs to be in space as far as 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 tall as it is or maybe I need to drop a little bit long but the the numbers you know when you're not measuring something how do you know how good it is completely right and when you are, you get a better sense sometimes of what's going on. I mean, that's why when you go get new golf clubs, you get on the TrackMan and you see, you know, what every how everything works. And we're using the TrackMan a lot in pitching now too. And we have a assistant pitching coach named Dusty Blake who does a fantastic job of under of making us understand the numbers, not just throwing numbers at it, but like, hey, listen, here's why you didn't know why they hit that ball in this position or in this spot, maybe, but here's why. And so. And here's another pitch that that they didn't hit. And, and you're wondering why they didn't hit it. But here's why. And so for me, one of the things that I really started understanding this year for the first time was not so much spin uh, spin rate, which is which is, you know, you want to see good spin rate on some things. But, you know, there's anomalies too. there's guys that have terrible spin rates on sliders and curveballs that have swing and miss sliders and curveballs. Everybody's got different stuff. But the vertical drop of my pitches was something that I really paid a lot of attention to this year. Uh, I started paying attention to it in spring training on my bullpen sessions and Dusty and I worked through that really well. Dusty and uh, Mike Maddox worked together really well on old school and new school talent kind of it's funny because you'll, you'll say like, Hey, how was that pitch right there? And, and Mad Dog will say something like, Oh, that's a pork job on the grill. And, and Dusty will say, Oh yeah, that's 2.7. We want to get you to 2.6. You know, there's like this cool, balance of old and new there and they both uh embrace it but on the vertical drop i i just i started it, it showed me like how to get to a better sinker and how to get to like where my arm angle needed to be to get the most drop or, or on a curveball the most horizontal uh movement which is sort of what puts my curveball uh apart from everyone else's it's not so much the the vertical drop as it is the horizontal movement so i had a real good time understanding the vertical drop and the horizontal movement of pitches, why they were successful and where they needed to be thrown at in the zone to have success in them. You know, we tried, there was times throughout the year where I would work on a different four seamer or a different two seam grip and change to a one seam or whatever, just to see in game what those numbers would come back and what the hit and the numbers are the numbers, but the hitter will tell you if it works or not. That's, that's the thing. You can embrace those numbers to a certain extent, but if you know if the numbers say this is a great pitch and the hitters are hitting it in the gap every you know every two minutes, you know it's not a great pitch. So there's this 
really cool balance that I'm understanding and appreciating now more than I ever have before. That's really interesting. You know, uh, to me, you know, you threw 861 sinkers this year and you didn't give up one home run, zero. It's interesting when you talk about the one line sinker, I used to throw that myself. Mel Stoudemire actually taught me that the, uh, the uh, great Yankees pitcher and pitching coach. And uh, did, did you have a, a, a different split in terms of when you threw the one liner or was, was that the pitch that you really kept down well this year? Or was it a combination of traditional two seamers or one line sinker? Well, it sounds like a scouting report a little bit, so I'm not going to give you all the juicy details about that because <laughs> I, uh, I know Chris Bryan and Javi Baez and Anthony Rizzo and all these great hitters. They're paying attention to what I'm saying right now somewhere because they love your show, I'm sure. Um, but uh, I'll tell you this. There were several times – I mean, what, here's really cool uh, understanding and just kind of accepting who I am as a pitcher – not trying to overthrow, not trying to, to keep up with these young guys who are throwing mid and upper 90s. I, I can't do it. My arm doesn't move that way. Never has really, but especially now it doesn't. So I really have to embrace who I am as a pitcher and what my athletic ability is to get the most out of it. But there were several times uh, this year where I threw three different varieties of fastballs in a row. And the hitter, even though they were all fastballs, I threw a four seam, a one seam, and a two seam, and my two seam has more uh, uh, horizontal movement to it. My one seam has more vertical drop, and my four seam has more ride to it. So I was giving a hitter three different looks on, on the same speed of pitch, and it was messing with these guys. And I had so much fun because, you know, three years ago, four years ago, I would never, ever, ever have thrown three fastballs in a row because my fastball is not that good. And I just know that, like, it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's okay, it's fine, but it's not good enough to throw three in a row because they all look the same. They're all the speed, the same speed. And they kind of know where I'm going to throw them. Like I, I'm not, when you face me, you know what I'm trying to do. I know what you're trying to do for, you know, like you're not pulling any fast ones on me either. I'm very prepared in my starts, but you know, my style and kind of what I'm going to do and where I'm going to throw it. So if I was going to throw three fastballs in a row, it really wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. Now I'm throwing these, three different variety of fastballs. I can throw them on both sides of the plate. And I finally, towards the end of the year, found a four-seamer that worked for me too because, man, beginning of the year, middle of the year, I would try a new one and be like, all right, how about this angle or how about this spin or how about this coming off my finger with this thought process? And you know, I gave up a home run, an 0-2 pitch on a fastball that I located absolutely perfect up and away. The hitter that I was facing was hitting 0-26 on fastballs up. He hits it out to dead center, and I'm like, okay, that's clearly not a very good pitch because this guy has a very a very big weakness on that location with that pitch. I threw that location with that pitch, and it got whacked. So that's obviously not a good pitch. So we went back to the well, changed some things up, then I started getting swing and misses. And a lot of, actually, I got a lot more ground balls on four-seamers than I've ever, and I've ever seen this year because I started throwing them in different quadrants. It was really fun. With the – Attention moving a lot toward pitching matchups, pitcher usage with with bullpen guys coming in and, and really the inning limits and the inning amounts kind of being limited here. You were one of only four pitchers in the majors this season to record at least 200 innings and the other three were 31 or younger. So in this pitching climate, how are you able to do that at age 39, age 40? Well, health is a big thing. I mean, I'm healthy again. 
but I think it all comes down to expectations as a pitcher. You know, if and also like, what are you okay with? What what are what what becomes normal for you, and what is okay with you? So, like, if you leave spring training, you make your first start, and you go five innings, and you go, man, I nailed that. That's I did my job. Then then that's just not right to me, right? A starting pitcher uh, should have his idea in his mind when he starts a game that he's going to be the best closer that day also get the first out. You should want to get the last out the ninth inning out too. Not like you got rained out after five and you survived long enough to get that kind of complete game. You should, you should have that. Like you should like just long to get those last three outs of the night. That's there's no better feeling in the world as David knows than standing out there. You got the home crowd, just going crazy, My, like they're just ready to, to, to rock and they start feeling it and you start feeling it because you know you started it and you got one out to get. When you get that last out and the crowd goes crazy, they go home, they're all driving home going, man, the pitcher was amazing today. Like he just, he was out there and he was efficient and he was working and that's baseball and it's purest. And it really is. And if you look around baseball right now, the teams that are winning in the postseason Almost always, not not always, but almost always, they're the teams with the best starting rotations. You know, for the last the last series, there was one manager out there managing like old school, like like let's see how far our starter can get us in this game, and then we'll bring in our big guns. And it was Brian Snicker, and that worked out real well for him. Beat a very good team in the in the NLDS or in the NLCS. But you know the 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 idea that. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to throw seven pitchers at you every day. First of all, that's going to slow the game down. Let's just be honest. That is going to slow the game down. But you just run into that. The, the odds say that one of those guys is going to have a bad game, bad game, probably two. Um, and then if you give up a couple crooked numbers in baseball, you're going to lose. You know, you, if you give up a two spot and a three spot, five runs, almost always you give up five, you're going to lose the game. Um, so, I just think that there's there's just baseball at its purest, baseball at its best to watch, to play, to play against is when the starter goes out there, handles his business, and then you hand the ball off. Reluctantly, the manager yanks it out of your hand because you want it. That's the mindset you got to have as a pitcher. When you hand that ball off, you know, I got my dogs coming in behind me and these guys are studs and we got three guys down there that are locked down relievers. That's what people want to see. That's what I want to see. That's what I mean. I just I want I want starting pitchers to get back into the light that they're going to go out to that to, to pitch one pitch at a time, one inning at a time for nine or for as long as they can with the idea that I'm going to I'm going to go out there and I'm, I'm put the team on my back today and not not just be OK with coming out after four and five innings. You know, that's interesting. That's a great point. Um, have you seen a change culturally with some of the young pitchers coming up and the expectations that they're happy going five and fly or fourth and fifth innings and they're looking over their shoulder? Do, do, you, do you see a culture shift there and some some of the, with the way they're being conditioned in the minor leagues? Yeah, and I think, well, I think you just nailed it. I think that's how they're being conditioned in the minor leagues. So when you get trained to look over your shoulder after the fourth and fifth inning, that's what you know how to do, right? Like you train your dog how to sit, it's going to sit. You train your pitcher 
to look over their shoulder because they've got a guy, you know, if they're double barreled in the fifth inning, every time you ever make a start in the minor leagues and you've been maxed out at 70 pitches or 75 pitches and you've never learned how, here's the thing about the minor leagues. The minor leagues should be about, and I think is for the most part, but should really be about learning how to get through those tough, that long season for the first time, how to overcome adversity, how to come back and persevere through the, through the little nagging injuries of a long season or a game and figure out, all right, am I hurt or am I hurting? Because there's a difference. If I'm hurt, I got to get out. If I'm just hurting, I got to grind through that. I got to figure out a way. And when you learn how to do that, when you, the thing that I think is lost in a lot of young players is the ability to go out and find a way, no matter what. I don't feel good at all today. My arm stinks. My, I got a pulled hammy. My calf's terrible, whatever. But I'm going to go out there and find a way. And I always heard about guys like Smoltz. He always pitched his best games when stuff was like that. And I know personally as myself, I've pitched a lot of my games, the best games I've ever pitched in my career, where I had like a, you know, a bulging disc in my back or a stomach flu all morning or whatever, because you've got to focus a little bit more. And, and uh, I don't know, there, there's just there's so much perseverance learned in the minor leagues when you allow a guy to struggle rather than taking them out before they get a chance to struggle. Like, yeah, we don't want this guy to struggle. We're going to go out there. He's going to end on a good note. That's great. But when you get to the big leagues, what's going to help you have a really long career is understanding how to get past those struggles and move on and get better from them and, go, and be able to turn the page quickly. You know, I think there's so many guys that come up now, something bad happens that they've never seen struggle before. And they go, whoa, what was that? Like, I've never had struggles in my whole life. Man, I had some struggles in the minor leagues where I'm going, I don't even know if I should play this game anymore. Like, am I even good? Like, all these players are so good. This guy hit a 450-foot homer off me. And then you, you figure out, like, all right, what did he hit? Okay, I'm not going to do that again. And then, you know, my, hand, my arm's killing me right now. But I found a way. I got through, you know, I pitched eight innings today. Like, okay, I can get through that. I can get through anything. And when you have that mindset, you can do a whole lot of cool things. David, it's interesting because this is coming from a dude who's had the highest of success, right? He's, I mean, he's approaching 200 wins. He and, he and Yadier Molina have, have built a career together as a tandem, and he's a World Series winner. And if, if it's coming from him, if it's coming from guys like you as well, what do you think it's going to take for the league, the sport, the industry? Because, again, it's, it's a conditioning that's happening in the minor leagues. What is it going to take to restore that conditioning that you had, Adam, that you had, David? Yeah, I think Adam hit the nail on the head in terms of the ability to learn your own body, to learn the difference between pain and injury is a key for any ball player, especially pitchers, to know what, you know, wow, my shoulders are barking a little bit, but I can work through this. You know, they're, they're, maybe my bicep tendon's a little, little inflamed, but I, you know, once I get hot, I'm going to be okay. You know, that being able to differentiate between pain and injury, I think, is a key for any young pitcher. That's where you learn it. You learn it in the minor leagues through, as, as Adam was saying, through, kind of struggling going through the adversities that, that uh, only, only pitchers can go through when, when you don't have your best stuff or when you do have to figure out a way to make this work. I think that's kind of a lost art. You know, I think the flip side of that, and I wanted Adam's kind of an opinion on this as well, is there, you know, it seems to be, and I know there's different radar guns now. Now we have StatCast. We have different ways to measure velocity now. Out of the hand, at home plate, perceived velocity, a lot of different ways to measure things nowadays. You know, I notice it seems to me that even back to the 80s or 90s, 
there are more hard throwers in the bullpen. It just seems like, you know, there's, there's more guys that are approaching a hundred miles an hour. The kids they're bringing up for the minor leagues are maximum effort guys. And it, it just, you know, if you're a manager or you're a front office, it's hard not to want to make that change, take the starter out and bring in that young kid throwing a hundred miles an hour. Cause we got two or three of those guys in our bullpen. It seems like every major league bullpen has some of those guys or guys that are coming up like that. Yeah, they do. I mean, everybody throws 100 now. It, it is uh, really remarkable, um, which I think is maybe why I have success because I throw below the hitting speed now, and they don't like that so much. You know, when I'm up there throwing upper 80s, they're like, I haven't faced anything like this all year. I don't know what to do with it, maybe. Um, uh, but you know what? I think to answer Justin, your question, I think guys are going to realize in arbitration numbers in a couple of years when they just come up and they're just heaving the ball and they're throwing hundred miles an hour, but they're going up and down to triple a up and down to triple a because they don't have pitch ability. They're not out there making pitches. There's not a lot of guys pitching anymore. I think what's going to happen is they're going to realize, man, I, I got to learn my craft a little bit better. I, I, I can't just come up and just throw it as hard as I want because these hitters are all adjusted to that now and they can all hit it. Uh, you see there's this triple-A train now where these guys are up and down, up and down across the league. But the pitchers are staying. The guys who can go out there and locate a couple different pitches for strikes, the guys who can throw a, a couple of different breaking balls for strikes or pitch up, down, in, and out, those guys are sticking around. They're not on that triple-A train. Those are the guys that are going to have the longer careers and going to have the, the arbitration salary numbers to back it up. And here's where it starts. It starts with a game of catch. There's so many guys I see now across the league just playing fetch and not playing catch. They're just worried about how hard they can throw it and how far they can throw it. There's nobody hitting each other in the chest anymore and, and picking little fine spots, on, like picking, pick, picking the C on the jersey of the Cardinals instead of throwing to this kind of empty space all around and hopefully they can jump and catch it. You know, when you learn how to play catch, that's the first part of learning how to be a good pitcher. What goes into that? What, what goes into playing catch? I think an, uh, a realization that every pitch matters. Every throw that I'm going to throw matters. I'm going to be intentional about getting better today with this game of catch. That was something that Chris Carpenter taught me a long time ago. There's no wasted throws. You know, we're, we're, are, are you just out here just kind of lobbing it around, just trying to get loose, or are you actually trying to get better today? And I think when the mindset is I'm going to get better today, you're not just heaving it. You're not just – you know, firing it all around, two hopping from 50 feet and, and throwing it in the stands from 200 feet. You know, it's, <clears throat> there's, a, there's an intentionality about every single throw that you have, locating every single throw that you have. And when you, when, you start, when you start small like that, it translates onto the field and you start being able to make pitches better. I think this is a good spot to maybe transition into what <clears throat> we saw on Wednesday night because when we talk about having pitchers fight back, you know, find that ability to make that adjustment. We, we saw that a little bit from Max Freed. He ran into trouble in that second inning with the Astros, but Brian Sitker left him in there. And at one point he's retiring 10 batters in a row. It felt like he was able to adjust in a game where his strength was matched up with Houston's strength. Is, is that what you're talking about there when you look at what Max Fried was able to do in game two, even though he took the loss? Yeah, and that was a huge performance for him too because when Charlie came out with his injury, it put a lot of strain on the bullpen. And you saw Massey go a few innings and you saw 
Um, the bullpen have to carry what six and six and a third innings or something like that. So the bullpen was taxed. They needed him to go longer. If he comes out right there after, you know, after two innings, then you're talking about back, but even with the off day, those guys are going to be really fatigued when they get back to Atlanta. So I think it was a really important. And, and here's the thing, whether your, your strengths match up against their strengths or not, it all comes down to execution. <clears throat> If Max goes out there and, and he's going to pitch in those righties a lot, he's going to throw that good four seam, has a little bit of cut, he's going to throw that big breaking ball, he's got a good slider, a little change up, he's going to do what he does. They know what's coming. You don't have to reinvent the wheel when you go out there. Now, you might have some hitters where you go, this guy is so good middle in, I've got to figure out something else. But if Max goes out there and locates his 94, 95, 96 mile an hour fastball with good cut inside on those righties, whether they like it in there or not, that's going to be hard to hit. Now, if he leaves it over the middle of the plate, they're going to have a field day with it. But, you know, when your strength as a pitcher lines up with a hitter's strength as a hitter, almost always you still have the advantage as long as you execute it. And he was able to come back and execute some good pitches after that. Great points. You know, pitching bad to the hitter's strengths is another strategy. You know, it's uh, it's, it's just like Adam saying is. A guy's a good fastball hitter on the inside corner. It's like, okay, hit this one. Chase him in there a little bit rather than just constantly throw him off speed down and away and trying to go soft and get him to chase and stay away from his strength. But to me, it's uh, it's important to challenge his strength, especially if it's your strength. And if you're banging heads, like Adam said, you know, you're pitching bad to hit to the hitter's strengths is a, is a good strategy and really can get into the hitter's heads as well. Yeah, you, you take their strength away when you exploit their strength. Oh, you like it down? I'll take you further down. Let's see how far you'll go because you like it down there. Oh, you you know curveball's coming? Great. Let's see if you'll swing at this three hopper right here. I'm about to throw you. We'll see what happens. And you're exactly right. That's a good way to that's a good way to put it, pushing their strength to the edge. And, and then you're right. If you can get them uncomfortable on their strength, then you've really got them when they're on, on the location of the zone where they're not comfortable. That's awesome. That's that's a, a great point. Um I, I I'm wondering because Max went through that, right? He, he was allowed to go through those middle portions of the innings and face the part of the lineup that did damage against him in that third inning. How can that serve him moving forward if he's getting another chance to start a, a game later on this series? Well, the adjustments he made, he knows now they work, right? So the next time he faces them, he knows exactly where he can go. Those hitters got to see him at his best too after that, after that second inning. And uh, he settled down, and now they go, all right, this guy's, you know, he's, he's good. He's going to make good pitches. We think we got to look at him, but who knows? He might do something completely different next time. You never know. Once a pitcher starts really executing, you get the hitter on their heels, and it can be a really, really tough thing for the pitcher or for the hitter to be confident when he gets in the box. So you get the hitter just a little bit wondering whether they got an edge or not, you have the edge right away. Instead yeah, of going really game good. by game here, you go ahead, David. Go ahead. Sorry. Excuse me, Justin. Yeah, it was really, you know, that bottom of the second, you know, Max Reed gave up four runs and a couple infield hits mixed in there, a little bit of bad luck. You know, it wasn't all on him. I'm sure he didn't get the ball inside like he wanted to, like Adam was saying on a few pitches. So he got burned on that. But, it, you know, there's a little bit of a random variance there, a little bit of luck factor, I think, and when he gave up four in the bottom of the second. So, yeah, to come back from that, as Adam said, and, and give them some solid work and some solid innings kind of sets up their bullpen for, for the, the next few games coming up. Yeah, and they gave up the, he gave up the little infield hit. 
That guy looked like he was running as fast as I've ever seen in my entire life, too, by the way. Uh, but they also threw a ball away and scored on the air. I mean, you know, there's a couple runs. As, you're, as a pitcher, you look back and you go, all right. Really, in my mind, I gave up, I gave up three runs. And if you give up three runs as a starter, you know, you go six, seven innings, you give up three. They, they call it a quality start or whatever. But you, you've given your team a chance to win. And those later innings when they had ducks on the pond, if they were down by one instead of down by four or five, that those, those become a lot tougher on the pitcher that's out there. It, James called it uh, death by a thousand cuts in that inning for, for Max Free, just the, the flow of it. James, we're going we're gonna to attempt this another time here. This could be the third. This could be the charm here. Do, do you got anything for us in, in regards to what we saw early on in this game? Can you hear me now? Yes. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, I did. Uh, I, did uh, I took out the old mic, so I'm going off the computer mic now. So hopefully, uh, hopefully this works out. Hey, low but, quality uh, is better than no quality, man. <laughs> right. So um, as far as the 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 beginnings of. Uh, these games throughout the postseason, but we saw it in both uh, ends of the first two games of this World Series, the first inning. And Adam, you can talk about it. Coney, you know about it. Um, we touched out on the first episode of the show. The first inning ERA in the, in the Major League postseason this year is 545. After that, it's 411. So it's a matter of a pitcher uh, getting into a rhythm or a quick strike from the offense. How does that, how do you think that works there, Adam? Well, and a lot of our pitchers, if you look at them, are, are really young guys. I mean, the, the, the Astros rookie, Luis Garcia, who struggled a couple of times in the first inning, these guys' heart rates, they've never been in the postseason before in the, in the big leagues, and they might not feel anything, and I could be just speaking out of turn here, but I know from my own personal experiences, the first time you get into postseason action and the crowds are rocking, especially after 2020 when we had no fans in the stands anywhere where anyone played uh, and you just get thrown into the, the fire with there's 60, 50,000 people in the stands. There's, you know, bass knocking your eardrums out. Your heart beats so hard early on in those games. And the hardest part is to control that, control your adrenaline because you can come out throwing, you know, 100%, everything you got, 105%, even more than you normally have with that adrenaline rush in the first and second innings. And then all of a sudden you're gassed going forward. So even if you get out of those innings, you can really struggle if you don't learn to control your heart rate, control your adrenaline. But I think these guys are just getting into situations where they're letting the moment kind of get the best of them instead of being able to control their emotions realize who they are as their professional pitch makers, which is something that Mike Maddox always reminds me, Hey, you're, your job today is a professional pitch maker. When you realize that, you go out there and you can step and you can be calm in any, any circumstance, any situation, and use the crowd when you need it for those boosts, but not get overwhelmed by it. Does that play a role into what we saw? I'm kind of jumping around here between games one and two, but with Framber Valdez and, and the way he was throwing the inconsistencies that we saw in, in game one compared to what he was able to do in the ALCS in game five. I think it was Pedro Martinez who mentioned that that's a guy who may have just been thrown too hard, amped up a little bit too much in the moment. What'd you take away from Valdez and, and trying to explain a little bit of his inconsistencies here? Well, he's again, a young pitcher and, um, I, I think sometimes you got to give credit to hitters who make good swings on good pitches and 
and are just dynamic athletes. I mean, the, the Braves came out and they were ready to rock. But the reason he pitched eight innings and gave up one hit or whatever it was the time before was he was in control of everything he was doing. He was mixing and matching speeds. He was up and down. He was throwing that big curveball for strikes. He was bouncing it when he wanted to. And the difference the next time out was he was in the middle of the plate a lot. And what, what, what can happen? I'm not saying it happened to him, but what can happen is you go, all right, I threw eight innings, one hit, and I still feel like I can do a lot better. Watch how much better I'll make this. And then you go out there and you kind of try too hard and you force yourself into the middle of the plate a lot more than you try, You did the time before where you were just going out and executing pitches. The same thing happens. You see a guy throw two really good sliders down and away, and then he goes, watch how much better I can make this slider. And then he tries to throw it so hard he spins it in the middle of the plate and gets hit out. So it's a, it's a, it's a funny thing, man. Hey, watch how much better I can hit this drive. I hit that last one 320. I'm going to really hit that. And then you hook it out of bounds. I mean, it's just staying within yourself is a big part about being an athlete. Between David and Adam here, two very successful pitchers who I think relish the opportunity to have a certain level of responsibility within their own pitching staff. So guys, when you see Charlie Morton go down and he's going to miss the rest of the world series, David, you, you, you know, Adam, you both suffered injuries at points in your respective careers where others are, are leaning on you for that guidance, for that leadership. What is Morton going through right now in that regard? I'll let Adam go first. I'll defer to Adam. Well, I've spoken to Charlie a couple of times since the injury. He's bummed. He's not playing. He wants to go out there and compete again. Um, but in a seven-game series, you know, I mean, they might play five games now. They, they evened it there, but they might win four games to one, and it, you know, it wouldn't have mattered as much. Now, they go seven games. He's going to be really, you know, shaking his head. But as another pitcher on that staff, I can tell you, like, we lost Jack Clarity this year. And uh, everybody said, okay, well, they're done. Jack's out. You know, their pitching staff is in shambles, blah, blah. And what I said was, I got this. Uh, and I think that's what these other pitchers are going to say. On both these teams right now, you got pitchers going, I got this. I can do this. And uh, I, can, I can pick up that slack. And that's what you want as a team. You want guys that, that go, all right, he, he's down, but I'm going to pick us up right here. And, and, and uh, you want guys that want the ball in the big moments. You want guys – who are, are willing to step up and, and, and put in those big team, big time situations where your team needs you. And maybe, you know, the chips are maybe stacked against you a little bit. And that's as being a good teammate, you want guys to step up. That's what you want. It's a great point. You know, there's a difference between pressure and opportunity. And if you're a young pitcher and you look at this as pressure, it's a, uh Oh, we lost Charlie Morton. Now it's on me. Am I going to be ready? Is there that doubt? Or do you look at it as an opportunity? And I always thought that was the right way to look at it. This is an opportunity. If I don't pitch well, I can deal with it. I'll stand in front of my locker after the game and say, hey, I, I didn't get the job done. I didn't perform. I didn't do it. You know, I can deal with that part. It's the opportunity part, never getting the opportunity, never getting the chance to pitch in those big games that worried me more. So, yeah, I think that's a mindset. I think Adam hit the nail right on the head. It really is a mindset of, well, it's my turn now. You know, I can't wait to get out there. This is a tremendous opportunity for me to pitch in big games and, you know, on the big, big stage and world series, uh, but you have to, you, that's what you waited your whole life for that. You know, that you can't shy away from that feeling or be worried about that feeling because you know, 
if it doesn't work out, it's okay. You know, uh, you can deal with that part because you worked your whole life to, to have that opportunity to pitch in that big spot. And guys, we have game three coming up. David, I know you were part of a team whose manager always stressed the importance of game three in a best of seven series because so many things can happen, right? You can, you can prevent a team from possibly going up 2-1 or 3-0 or, and, and it could dictate a series. That's what Joe Torre always highlighted on that best of seven series here. So we have game three in front of us coming up Friday night. Ian Anderson going up against uh, Garcia. Two pitchers who are young. Ian has a lot of experience, even at a young age, though. So when you factor in the context that surrounds a game three, two young pitchers, what are you looking at? You know, for me, you know, I know Adam's had a lot of experience with this as well. It's, it's now a five-game series. You know, Atlanta did their job. You know, they went down to Houston and they split – now they have the home field advantage. Three out of the next five potential games are in their home ballpark. So now this becomes game one in, in a game three for Atlanta. And it really does, you know, it's, it's sort of, you know, you can seize the momentum right now if you're Atlanta and really take charge. And if you're, if you're on that Braves team right now, you do not want to go back to Houston. You do not want to let this series get back to Houston. You want to take charge. If you win game three, now you're up two to one. Now you go for the juggler. And if you can get the next game, now you can end it right at home. So as conversely, if you're Houston, you're, you're sort of, a, you know, we have to just win one game to get the series back to Houston. But when we get back home to Houston, is are we down 3-2 or up 3-2? And a lot of it hinges on the game three start. So the momentum can be seized right here in game three. Yeah, that's right. Who, who's starting for Houston again, who'd you say? It's Luis Garcia. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, I'm so, I'll am tell you this. I'm a huge Ian Anderson fan. I've never met him. I think he's a stud. He's pitched some huge games for them in the postseason the last two years. I've been very impressed with him. Uh, in, in multiple, multiple games, I've been very impressed with how cool and calm he stayed. Um, I'm very impressed with Luis Garcia's stuff. He had an incredible year this year. It's gonna be a, he's going to be on that rookie of the year ballot. I think that's a big – that is a big game for him. I'm – I think he pitched a little bit. He pitched a little bit better this last time out, didn't he? Um, yeah. So he might have gotten kind of comfortable, understood how he could control his emotions and his heart rate, like we were talking about earlier, a little bit better with a little more experience that last start out. Uh, conversely, what what Dave was saying, when Atlanta can really take the momentum here, but if Houston goes in there and wins two games, man, they can really flip the script on the momentum. So this next game's huge. Uh, no doubt about it. Game three is always a big swing game. You want to win those swing games for sure. Uh, it's going to be fun to see. That Atlanta crowd, I can promise you, is going to be absolutely rocking. So both places, both places in Houston. Houston's the loudest stadium I've ever been in, uh, period. When they had the, the roof closed and they had the killer bees back in the day. And that's, man, that they have to have the bullpen siren it's not a ring it's not a phone it's a siren that goes off in there because you cannot hear it if not that place gets as loud as ever and this new uh, Atlanta stadium which I think is one of the best in baseball is going to be absolutely rocking too so that's going to be a fun game to watch what do you tell to a young pitcher like Luis Garcia in terms of relaxing in an atmosphere like that 
Well, he pitched a big one the other day. I, I mean, you know, just, hey, continue to do that. Remember that what I said earlier about being a professional pitch maker. Just keep it simple. Don't try to do too much. Don't try to build off that too much. Just do what you do. Go out there and make pitches and execute. If you just keep the, the thought of I'm just going to execute every single pitch when I go out there. Execution, execution, execution. That was what Roy Halladay used to preach when he got done speaking. He'd be in his press conferences. I loved watching Roy Halladay pitch, and I loved watching his press conferences because, hey, hey, Roy, how did you throw that perfect game? And I was just out there trying to make pitches, you know. Hey, how did you throw that, that no-hitter? I was just trying to make pitches. How'd you throw your your tenth complete game in a row and your your fifth shutout? Well, I mean, I was just trying to make pitches. You know, I mean, he just kept it simple, and he just every every single pitch, I have a plan with it, and I'm just going to do that over and over and over again. And uh, when you do that, it, it works out pretty good. James, when you look at the, uh, go ahead, David. You know what? Zoom, Zoom is a tricky animal here, man. <laughs> yeah, not at all. You know, I just uh, the fact that he threw out, uh, you know, Roy Holiday to me was interesting because that that was kind of the segue I was looking for. Is like the influences in his career. Obviously, growing up in Atlanta and, and uh, you know the the big three, the big three Hall of Famers. Uh, have, have you ever looked at BaseballReference.com and looked at your similarity scores, Adam, about pitchers who've had similar type careers to you? Uh, I have not, but looked. I've had that shown to me. I, the last time, though, I was, it's probably been five or six years ago. Oral Hershiser was a guy who was, uh, who was, they were saying I was kind of similar to Oral, but I, it's been since 2000, probably 2015 that anyone showed me that. Yeah. Well, you know, number two on the list is Roy Halliday at this point, as we speak. Number one on the list, Roy Oswalt. And number three on the list, Ron Guidry. Louisiana Lightning. So you've got some some excellent names on your list. Brett Saberhagen, Dwight Gooden. That's when you know you've had a pretty good career. When you look at your similarity scores, and there's several Hall of Famers on there, and there's some big names. John Candelaria. I don't know if you ever saw John Carroll Candelaria pitch, big lefty back in the 70s. He was filthy. I mean, absolutely filthy. And of course, you saw Roy Oswald pitch. What a great pitcher he was. And of course, Roy Halliday, the Hall of Famer. Those are your guys right there. You know, there's another one on that list. Number seven, similar pitchers through age 39, yours truly, me. I'm, I'm, I'm the seventh most uh, similar pitcher to you through age 39. So I did make it to 40 years old pitching. I didn't have the year you had at 40 years old. I had to walk away. Uh, congratulations. What a great year you had there. Uh, you know, in your age 40 uh, season, how much longer? How much longer you got? Great question. Great question. I probably, I'm thinking one more. I think one more is good. My family is, uh, I have five kids and, uh, my oldest one is a freshman in high school now. And, uh, my youngest is two. So <clears throat> I got high school and I got diapers and, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in between there where she's at soccer, she's at baseball, she's at, at, at golf, she's at singing, she's at guitar, he's at preschool, Oh, and by the way, nothing is close. You know, you got to go all the way across town. And, and, and my wife is glad to have a secondary Uber driver in her house because I feel like that's what we do around here. We, uh, we spend our days doing laundry, cleaning up messes, and driving people all over the place. And that's what we do. Uh, so um, when I'm not here, that's a lot more strain on my wife. And it's a lot harder for all my kids to, to go places and do things. And, and I've had a pretty good run. You know, I've I've been able to live out my dream. Now I want them to be able to live, live out their dreams. And I don't want them to miss anything because dad wasn't around and they couldn't get a ride there. And, uh, but 
yeah. So I still got some things to do. I still need to throw a no hitter or a perfect game like you did. How old were you when you threw your perfect game? I was 36, 36 years old. So I appreciated yeah. it a little later in my career, which you know you appreciate as you get a little bit older. Yeah. Things that come. Well, maybe your- that maybe that ship has passed me, but I'm going to try for it still. <laughs> Not, not based on your performance last year. It's well within reach, that's for sure. And you know, I, I, maybe I'll give James Smythe another chance to jump in here just to to kind of soup you up a little bit, Adam. And thank you for for being for being on our, our podcast here. But I know James, uh, can you can you put Adam Wainwright's career into a little perspective for us? Well, yeah, we have uh, a, a, some milestones that you can hit in this in this uh, upcoming season. Your seventeenth, all with the Cardinals. That's, is that very meaningful to you as in an era where guys usually don't spend their whole careers with one team anymore, spending all 17 with St. Louis? Yeah, that's been special to me. I mean, especially to be a part of an organization that we have a chance to, to win every year, which is really all you can ask for. Going to spring training with a team that you go, you know what? We could win this thing, you know, and that, that kind of attitude, that mindset, and, and plus being able to, I mean, we see Ozzie Smith and, and get to be with Willie McGee all the time. But we see Ozzy and we, you know, I got to hang out with Stan Musial. I got to hang out with Red Shane Deanst and Bob Gibson and Lou Brock so much. But we see Vince Coleman and, you know, Chris Carper and Jason Isringhound, all these guys who helped establish this great system and this great kind of way of doing things, the Cardinals system. Uh, they're, they're, the, they're what made that established you know they're those guys are the are the torch bears and and now they've just passed that down and and so now we're just trying to continue to to be torch bears that keep our keep keep the cardinals traditions alive you know the the winning tradition that the cardinal the cardinals have is 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 uh is special it's like you know right at the top of you know maybe david's team the yankees might be the only team that's won more games than the than the cardinals and won more championships than the cardinals in the history of baseball so we're in a we're in a special place. We just got to keep that going. So it's been a great it's been a great ride, I, and I've been so blessed to be with the Cardinals this long. So your top three in Cardinals history in pitching war and strikeouts, both second to Bob Gibson, and your third in wins. And I want to bring up the 184 for wins because not only do you have a shot at getting the 16 next year to get to 200, but you're only 10 away from David Cohn, who had 194. Well, then 195 is my goal. Let's do that. Uh, no, I, I, I mean, you know, the 200 is, as my good buddy John Lackey, who used to be my teammate, would say, that is a good round number. Um, that, that would be cool. That would be fun. And, and I just got 2,000 strikeouts, which was a big, a big one for me. Um, but you know what? I mean, at the end of the day, I don't know how much it matters, 200 to 199. But I would rather have 200 than 199. Let's just go ahead and say that. <laughs> Honesty. I like it. Adam, before we let you go, you mind answering some questions from fans that tweeted out some questions for yeah. you? Yeah, they had awesome. some good ones. They did. I got some here. Let me, let me go through a few. And we're going to call out the people and their, their Twitter handle along with their questions. So this is the first one from at the GeoPlay. As someone who's done both at the highest level, what's the difference in mentality in starting versus closing postseason games? Mm. I didn't see that one, or I would have prepared a little bit better. Um, <laughs> the last three – so here's something that David probably could, could agree with me here. 
there's certain things that numbers can't define. And there's, there's a difference in getting those last three outs than there is in getting the first 24 outs. There's something different about that ninth inning. You can't just put anybody into that spot. They have to have a certain mindset. Um, and, and seemingly a closer has to bring the tying run into scoring position, no matter what, unless you're Mariano Rivera, that's just something that a closer has, has to do. I don't, I don't know why that is, but, uh, I would say the mindset, um, for me was the same, um, and that I'm going to throw this pitch like it's the last pitch that I'm ever going to throw with that much intensity, with that much um, intentionality behind it. And then when you execute that pitch and you keep it simple, like we've been talking about this whole time, you don't have to go out there and blow everyone away, right? There's different ways of doing it. Mark Melanson goes out there, he gets his strikeouts, but he, he lives on the corners with that good cutter, that good curveball. And he just makes good pitch after good pitch, good pitch after good pitch. He gets that good soft contact. And you're not going to give up a whole lot of homers when you're getting soft contact. I think it's just the key is just keeping it simple. Now, it can be it can be even harder, especially when you enter the game and you haven't been leading up starting it. That ninth inning can be harder when you just come in out of out of the cold and you're asked to get the, you know, probably the meat of the order. In the ninth inning with, with all the, the season on the line, that, that seems to be the closer's role a lot. And, and, and it can be harder, but the main thing is controlling that heart rate and controlling your mindset so that you're just simplifying as best as you can. I'm going to follow up with that, but I'm going to pose the question, Adam. I'm going to pose it to David, and then I want to hear what you think of, of his reaction. So, David, you're wearing the manager's hat here, right? Which version of Adam Wainwright would you want on the mound in a postseason game? Do you want the 24-year-old version or the 40-year-old version? You know, I, I'll take the experience. You know, <laughs> he'll take – he's saying, you know, you know, we all say I like the younger arm. I like a little little extra on my stuff. Uh, and certainly I, I understand that. But, you know, the, the 40-year-old that we just saw in the year he just had, he knows what he's doing. Uh, now he's throwing cutters and sinkers and he's doing a crisscross game with his fastballs. He's got three different kinds of fastballs. Now he's still got that uncle Charlie. He can drop over at will. He can throw one for a strike. He can bounce it and get a strikeout. You know, I like the mind of the 40 year old Adam Wainwright right now, especially a guy who understands who's got that growth mentality of an old schooler who's learned a few new tricks along the way, you know, and maybe getting some more depth on my sinker. You know, I mentioned it before, he threw over 800 sinkers this year, not one home run. That's remarkable to me. And I know with that defense at St. Louis features, you know, he's smart enough to pitch to his defense too. So I know there's a lot of ground balls that got, got eaten up, you know, and, and St. Louis, I think underrated defensively across the board. Is there a better center fielder than Harrison Bader right now in the game? I'm not sure I've seen one. And, the, you know, they catch it all over the place. So, you know, you talk about the right pitcher on the right team doing the right thing and still learning some new tricks. I'll take the guy we're looking at right now. You're hired. <laughs> I, I, I would say, I would say, I, I mean, certainly as far as um, know-how and wisdom about pitching um, now for sure, but I do wish I could get like three more whenever I needed it miles an hour, you know, just to get like an O2 punch out. Um, but I'll tell you, I'm more comfortable in those big spots now than I ever have been. So I was really looking forward. I was, man, I really think we had a deep run in the playoffs if we get past the Dodgers. I really had a strong feeling that we might be playing baseball right now. 
Um, that's just kind of how we were trending towards. But I really wanted to pitch in the postseason to just show the world that you don't have to throw 95 to 100 to have success in the postseason especially. I think you, you know, you've made that mark perfectly clear, especially through that regular season, through that run that the Cardinals had 17 straight near the end to, to get to that game. But yeah, we, we're, we are blessed with many examples from, from pitchers like yourself and especially what you've been able to do over the last you know, year or two that, uh, that you know, it doesn't have to be all heat all the time. This is, uh, this is another good question from, from Mark Simon from Sports Inflow Solutions. He's a great baseball stat follower if you haven't followed him already. To, uh, at Mark A. Simon says, and he asked, by our company's tracking, and I'm not sure what, you know, how they quantify this, but there were considerably more great plays made behind Adam than any other pitcher this season. Does Adam have any say in how his defense is positioned? Yeah, I have some say. I mean, you know, the, I, I trust our guys. Stubby Clapp, who was in charge of infield alignment this last year, does a great job. It's it's based off of a lot of hard numbers and facts that, you know, um, that just prove a guy's going to hit a ball in a certain spot. Now, I will say there's certain times where personal history has to be factored into that equation. Let's say, let's say I'm facing Freddie Freeman. And the, the book on Freddie might be to shift the third baseman over a little bit more to pull the shortstop across and a little bit, maybe play straight up, straight behind second, or maybe sometimes a full shift and depends on how hot Freddie is. But a couple of years ago, Freddie hit like 450 against the shift. You know, he would just take his single to left every time if you gave up that same, that big side of the infield. But let's just say that I'm facing Freddie and the book says to full shift him. But on me personally, what he does to me, is different from the book. And I've got four or five instances where he hits a ball a certain place and we need somebody right there. Right. Um, there was a couple, there was a guy a couple years ago where the book on him was in two strike counts. The third base would need to play almost on the line. And I said to a stubby, I said, Hey, I hear you, but check these, check these swings on me. Oh, two counts or one, two counts. When I throw my hook away from him, He's gonna. He's looking to, to hit the ball the other way with two strikes, a little bit more than you think off me. And so when he does hit that curveball, it's more in the six hole than it is down the third base line. Check it out. If you agree with me, let's move that third baseman a little bit more in the hole when it gets to two strikes than on the line, even though the book says the otherwise. He comes back, he says, and you're exactly right. He, on this situation, 0-2, 1-2 counts, He's going to hit that ball in the hole if he hits it. And sure enough, first at bat, 0-2 count, ground ball, right to the sixth hole. Third baseman standing right there out at first base. And I look over and go, that's right. Yeah, that's right. You know, but the, the good thing, you know, I was able to do that a couple of times this year where I turn around and let's say Lorenzo Kane's up and he used the right side of the field really well. But he usually hits it in the air to the right side. But off me, he's got several ground balls to the right side. So I might say, hey, check out this number right here. And then during the game, if I'm feeling something, like if uh, Trey Turner was up this year and I go, man, I've got him slowed down so much. I need to move this second baseman over because if I throw a fastball, he's going to hit a ground ball in that four hole and I need it covered up. So I move Tommy over mid-game, ground ball right to him out at third or out at, at first. And I look and Tommy goes, how'd you do that? And I go, bro, you're just pitching. It's a long, you know, I'm really old. And I got a lot of, you know, I've seen it a bunch of times, but there's so many times where, where 
a guy hits a line drive right past your head. And there's a guy standing behind second now that there didn't used to be. And those, those bench coaches aren't going, yeah, that's right. You know, they're just, they're just doing their job. It's, it's us ego uh, monsters that are out there doing that. But yeah, there's, we get some say in it. It's, it's a really fun, I like doing all that stuff. And I trust our, our coaches a lot. Is that more of a feel for your own pitches or like you said, going off hitter reactions? Yeah, it could be either. could be either. Um, I mean, a big part of my pitching out there is, is watching the reaction to a hitter um, and then trying to figure out if he's deking me or not. Justin Turner deked me this year in the postseason. It might have cost us the postseason. He starts inching up on the plate on me, and I'm watching him, and his toes are getting closer and closer to the plate as the bat goes on. And Yachty shows me, too. He's like, hey, look at his feet. I said, oh, trust me, I know. So now I'm thinking, all right, do I just keep taking him away like – like what David and I talked about, he's looking for a pitch away. Let's give him something a little bit further away. Instead, I go, let me start this breaking ball right at him and bring it back towards the inside corner, and I'm going to lock him up right here. And he hit it out. And Justin Turner's a really good middle-end hitter. And uh, I should have just kept taking him away. Instead, uh, he deked me, and he hit a homer on me, and he tied the game up at 1-1. I remember that pitch very well. And it wasn't a bad pitch either. Well, it was the pitch I was trying to throw, but it was the wrong pitch. Um, so, but if he pops that up, I feel like a hero, you know. There you go, right? <laughs> the end result. He was facing uh, – who was he facing the other day? He was facing uh, He was facing somebody from the Giants. I can't remember who. And they threw the same breaking ball middle in, and he popped it straight up to third. And I was like, dude, what the heck, man? You can't pop that up on me? Like, what in the world? What's wrong with you? But – you mentioned Yadier Molina's name moments ago, so we're going to wrap this up with a with a good question from one of our sister shows on John Boy Media. It's Talking Baseball, the fine folks there with uh, Jimmy and Jake and Trevor Plouffe, and their questions is how much of Adam's success does he credit to throwing to the same catcher his whole career? They also have a, another question, but we'll get to that. I, I want you to answer that first. A lot. I mean, a lot of it, right? Like, he's going to shut the running down, the game down. He's going to block every pitch in the dirt. He's going to call a great game and be very prepared. He's the smartest guy on the field. He's always watching for hitter tendencies, and he knows my game better than anyone, and he knows what I have on any given day. So he might, you know, one game he might call more sliders or more cutters, and one game he might call more curveballs or sinkers or whatever it is based off what I have that day, and he's got a really good feel of what I have and what the hitter's trying to accomplish. But defensively, I mean, has there ever been a better defensive catcher than Yadier Molina? I don't know if there has in the history of the game been a better defensive catcher than Yadi. And, and, you know, I think I heard Johnny Bench say that one time. And if Johnny Bench thinks that, then that's good enough for me. You know, I mean, it's, it's not – I'm very biased. I'll be the first one to go on record and say I'm the most biased guy ever. He's the greatest catcher. You know, he's a great friend of mine. He's incredible player. I think he's the best defensive catcher of all time. I clearly haven't seen everyone play catcher. But he's the best I've seen, and I've seen a lot of guys play the game. Um, I, I watched baseball now for 40 years, but 38 years that I can remember, 37 years that I can remember, I've never seen a defensive catcher like him out there. So that's the guy that I've got to play catch with for the last 17 years. I mean, how could I not give him a lot of my credit for sure? Do you ever, do you ever shake him off a lot, or do you ever get mad at you if you do shake him off? Any, any friction at, at any point? 
I shake him sometimes. He knows I'm when I shake though. Now he knows I'm. I'm. You know I'm. I've got a reason for it. Um, he should. He shouldn't have let me uh, throw that pitch. To, I blame him for that curveball to Turner though. That was his fault. Um, there was one time in AAA. We, so we've been together more than 17 years. He was my catcher in 2004 in AAA. And there was one time where I was just out of sorts mentally, and I hadn't figured everything out just yet. And I still haven't figured everything out, but I really hadn't figured everything out back then. And there was one time where he came to mid-game and goes, hey, what are you doing? Stop shaking me every pitch. Trust me. you got to go with me. Today you're not on. you got to trust me right here. And he was right. And there's been several times where I was battling something like mechanically big time or I was you know, battling something mentally big time. And I went to him before the game and I said, Hey, you got the, you got the game calling today. I need to really focus on locking in my arm path or my handbrake or whatever it was. And there was a couple of times where Jose Akindo, our third base coach came to me and said, Hey, let Yachty call today. You're not calling a good game. And he was right. You know, I love that. I love that good on, you know, at first you're like, whatever, man, I'm calling a great. And then you're like, well, they do have, seven hits in three innings so maybe he's right you know and so there's part of being a good pitcher and being a good anything in life is being a good self-evaluator and those guys help me do that one thing i love about yadier obviously the talent is through the charts but i notice all the time the the fire the passion he plays with and it's so endearing to a lot of fans but whether it's gamesmanship whether it's showmanship when he's lit up like that are you the guy who you know, eggs him on a little bit, or are you trying to calm him down? Uh, neither. I, I, you let him be. You let him do what he does. You know, you don't don't get in the way of whatever greatness he's throwing out there that day. He, Yachty's going to be uh, Yachty in any situation, no matter what. He does not care what the fans in any park he goes to thinks about. He's going to play his game. He's going to he's going to try to help his team win to the best of his abilities. My job sometimes with Yachty is uh, is to um, hone him in a little bit uh, off the field. Um, like just as far as uh, he's a he's very um, emotional sometimes about things and 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 I hey, hey just take it easy just take let's let's calm down let's think and that's my role like that's that's why I think I've got job security with the Cardinals is I'm, I'm kind of like his caddy and he's kind of like my caddy. So we, we worked well together. <laughs> I'll jump in with um, a note going into, into next season. You two have been the starting battery for the Cardinals in 304 games uh, with 21 starts together next year. You guys would set the modern MLB record for most starts together for a pitcher and catcher. Uh, Mickey Lolich and Bill Freehand from the Tigers in the 60s and 70s have the current record at 324. You guys are at 304. I, I hope you make a ton of starts together and, and, and you get that record. Yeah, me too. I mean, I, I, I look at my career and I go, man, I, I had pretty much three lost seasons. I missed, I missed the, most of the season with the Achilles in 15. I missed uh, all of 11 with uh, Tommy John. And I missed – part of 2008 with a finger injury and I missed part of 2018 uh, with an elbow injury. So like if you add those up, I missed kind of three combined. If not for that, we would have like 400 starts uh, career together. And, you know, I'd be, you know, who, who knows if I'd have won any games those seasons, but I like to think I would have won those seasons. I, I, uh, 
those were my prime years. Um, so who knows what could have been, but I'm, I'm blessed to, to pitch to Yachty for as long as we have. He's, he's a great friend. I'm actually going down to his house for, for Thanksgiving. We're going to spend Thanksgiving together in Puerto Rico. I can't wait to see what Puerto Rican Thanksgiving's like, but I'm very excited about it. Um, and uh, we're going to have a good time. He's a great friend of mine. That sounds excellent. Um, last question they had for you, it was a follow-up there. They wanted to know if you had mentioned Trevor Plouffe's name to the Cardinals front office at all. I think this was before they, they hired Oliver, but they were, they were trying to see if you could put a word in for him. <laughs> was it Trevor trying to see? <laughs> no, I thought he had I, a good I, thing going here. I, I didn't know he, he had managing aspirations. I thought the, the media world was treating him well. Yeah, I don't know Trevor. Um, I'm sure he's great, though. <laughs> Adam, thank you so much for spending some time here with us, man. Uh, good luck to you in, in 2022. And uh, once you get victory 195, you set the record with Yadier Molina as well. You're going to be feeding America, Five Oak Farms. Um, we're, we're really excited for what you're going to have in store for 2022. But it seems like you got a great plan lined up for, for after you retire, man. So congratulations to you. Thank you very much. I will not be bored. That's for sure. I will not be bored. It's been great talking with you, Mr. Cohn. Always great to see you. Glad we could talk some baseball, James. Glad you finally got in there and got your microphone worked out. I'm glad I finally showed up and stopped big leaguing everybody. And uh, Justin, it was great talking with you too, buddy. Thank you very much, God, man. And 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 David and James, we're wrapping up here. Anything you want to uh, you want to remind the folks as we move this World Series to Atlanta, and you know you get ready for games three, four, and five. No, a big thank you to Adam. You know, a big fan of your work. And you know what? You could be a broadcaster too, dude. You were good in that booth. So, you know, you got a future. You got a second career if you want it. It's there for you. And I'm sure you already know that. But nice job in the booth. It's not the easiest job in the world, as you know. You know, everybody thinks it's easy to do a broadcasting gig. It's not. You got to be ready. You got to be prepared. You got to watch what you say at times. But you did a great job. So that's there for you whenever you're ready for it, when you're done pitching at it. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, guys. Great talking with you. All right. Be well, Adam. That's going to do it for us here on this edition of Tone and Slab. Thanks again for listening. And, Adam, thank you again for, for coming on here. Please rate, review, most important, subscribe. That way you uh, never miss a regular episode that will drop, of course, each Tuesday or, you know, bonus episodes like we're doing here with the great Adam Wainwright. Enjoy the games in Atlanta, everybody. We'll talk to you soon.